Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. I'm William, and today we have a very special episode. We have Samantha, Sarah, and Victoria. Samantha, everybody's familiar with now. So, hi, Samantha. Hi, William. Sarah has been on the podcast multiple times, mostly to talk about her work at TCFE with HTV. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hello. Victoria, this is your podcast debut, and we're so excited for you to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to finally have been asked to be a guest on here. I was waiting, William. Well, I feel like there's <laughs> a little bit of shade, shade there. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, we're glad that you're here. This is going to be the last episode of season two of Down the Rabbit Hole. So... There's a lot of pressure, Victoria. You got to perform. You know I will. <laughs> yeah. So today we're going to talk about two approaches to violence prevention, two approaches to maybe the world. Who knows? Samantha and Sarah are social workers. Myself and Victoria are both public health practitioners, I guess is maybe the term. We have all been to grad school to get our respective MSWs and MPHs. And we just thought it would be a fun conversation, maybe a, an interesting one, a one that is maybe a little bit more philosophical, less heavy than a lot of the conversations we have here on Down the Rabbit Hole. And we'll just see where the conversation goes, per the usual. So by way of trigger warnings, not sure, not sure where this conversation might take us and what we might get into. So just be aware of yourselves. Be aware of how you're feeling as you listen to this episode. And of course, if you need to take a break, please take care of yourself and do so. Other than that, though, we'll just see where we go. Hopefully, we won't get into any conflict. And, uh, we, we've been framing this MSW versus MPH, but I think we'll discover and we'll talk about a lot of the similarities and overlaps that we have actually, too. So, But we're excited to jump in. Well, before we get to the showdown, William, I have a question for everybody. We will probably be talking a little bit about some of our strengths and what parts of ourselves lend it to our profession and our degrees. But first, I want to talk a little bit about maybe what we're not so great at. So I want to take a moment and think about while we're in college, working so hard for these degrees, and maybe we failed a class. Maybe there was something we didn't do so great in. So I will go first to open up the vulnerability just to set a precedent that we are failing forward. We are all fine now. And so what if you failed something a few times and had to pay lots of money to take the class over and over again? You know, it's all fine now. So in my undergrad, had to take some science and math classes, both of which I'm not great at. I did manage to pass my math class. I failed my biology class three times. Well, no, that's not true. Two times, and I passed it the third time. So my thought was, you know, it's biology. It's about the human body. I am a human. I have taken this class in high school. The mitochondria is a powerhouse of the cell. I've got it down packed. Like, there's no way I could fail. That's not true. And to make it worse, both of my in-laws are science professors and do research. Like they have labs and they teach college students science and they tried their very best to make me not fail. And I still did. But here we are today and I have a whole degree and it's fine. So I'll open it up to the rest of y'all now that I have bared my soul. I would like to follow that, Samantha, because I was a biology major I know. I looking back, I'm like, why? Did I get the mitochondria <laughs> part right at least? You did. You did. Yes. Um, yes, you did. But I totally understand going into a biology class and thinking it's going to be one thing and then just it not. The body is so much more complicated. But I totally get that. And I can say that I, I do like science, except for physics. I struggled through physics. It doesn't make sense to me. I could care less about how energy and things move about in this world. <laughs> it just is so dull to me. So I struggled through physics. And, uh, but yeah, like you said, I, <laughs> I got my master's. <laughs> we're, we're fine. It worked out well in the end. But if you ask me to do physics to this day, I 
I won't do it. I won't touch it. So that is my failure. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for sharing, Victoria. And also, yeah, I, I also hate physics. That is the only time that a teacher has ever made me cry was my physics class. Not a fun time. I think just I have a bad relationship with sciences in general. So that makes me so sad because I love science so much. And I mean, physics is hard because it's math and science. And people think that if you're good at science, you're good at math and vice versa. And that is just false. But I will say so. I was also a biology major. And the class that I failed was a biology class, it was called histology. Um, I loved histology. Oh my god! It's so I funny. It so I hated it so much. For those of you who may not be biology people, histology is the study of tissues. It is a class that is almost entirely in microscopes, and you're having to figure out and name the different tissues and like the functions. And I did really well in classes like physiology, but histology was just not my jam. And the professor was so nice, Doctor Irvin. Wherever you are, shout out to you. But my big problem was the lab didn't do well in that. The lecture I could kind of handle a little bit, but it was right after a class. It was evolution was the class that I had before. And that professor would turn off the lights and it was like super boring. Don't remember his name. So no shout out to him. But it was in the same room. And so I would just stay in the same seat, which was mistake number one. And so I would fall asleep routinely in histology lecture. And it was not like it was like the second row. It wasn't even in the back. Yeah. Like it was rude. Um, and then for lab, lab was at 8 a.m. And on my way to class, I would have to stop and get breakfast. But you couldn't take breakfast into the lab. So I'd have to just wait in the hall, like making excuses for myself. Those were all bad decisions, all that I made. And so I failed it pretty miserably and then retook it and only got a C. So even on the retake was not even like doing super hot but histology was my weak point in in my bio major so it's a very dull class so I don't I don't blame you (laughs) and everything is like stained the same and it's all the same like it's Mm -hmm. just not it no but anyway Sarah your turn I'm impressed that you even took those levels of science classes because that was like not even an option for me I didn't know that existed. Yeah, same. Similarly to Samantha, and I suppose (laughs) all three of you is, I also failed my science classes, not two times, but three times. (laughs) And I did so poorly that I decided to switch my science to geology because I was like, I can definitely pass a class about rocks. And I did not. (laughs) I definitely failed three times and decided to just walk away from the science class with a D on my transcript. So, you know, I'm here as a success story that you can still fail science and get a degree. Although I will say in job hunting, there have been times where I've had to provide a transcript, which is a brief moment of shame, but not a whole lot. So that's okay. Cause I would much rather understand and learn social justice than, you know, rocks and coastlines. I was really hoping you were about to say that there's been times when applying for jobs that you had to talk about rocks and do like a presentation about rocks. It would have brought it full circle. But yeah, you know, it's fine. We are all okay now. We can move past it and we're here now. And how often do we have to talk about cells and rocks in our jobs? Pretty much never, right? So it's fine. I told them I wouldn't use it, and I have not. Oh, I just think it's our villain origin story for all of us. Mm-hmm. Started in a science class mm-hmm. somewhere in America. <laughs> We're not superheroes either. <laughs> yeah. It's always interesting the things that you remember from those classes, too. There are a couple of things from histology that I still remember, even though I routinely got like 32s on tests. There are a few things that, that still stick in there. I think that even though we may have failed these classes or or done poorly in them, like it's a good story and you can laugh about it now. And we all have made it like those, that was, I mean, gosh, like a decade ago or more. 
for most of us at least. So we're doing all right. Don't love that you said that, that it was a decade ago. <laughs> I don't think I'd realized how long ago that was. And I will say, just for the record, I ended up getting an A the third time I took biology. Did I have to switch to a whole different school to take it? Yes. But you know what? I got the A. It's fine. <laughs> a real growth moment for me. So now that we're here, and that was our sorted past with science and the probably low points of our degree path, but I want to talk a little bit about that path and about the journey that we have all taken that might look a little different for William and Victoria than it did for Sarah and myself, and maybe even differences within the degree itself. So now I'm wondering, what does that path look like from those failed science classes to getting our degree and to maybe your first job after your degree or some sort of licensing process? Sarah, what happened after you got your master's degree? So just to preface, Samantha and I are both the social workers in the group in case it wasn't noted. After I got my MSW, I was fortunate enough to get hired by my final internship. So part of the social work process is that you have to do a full-time internship at the very end of your education. And I was lucky enough to get hired by that agency, which was a victim services agency with a local law enforcement in their domestic violence and sex crimes unit responding to intimate partner violence, sex crimes, and domestic violence cases that law enforcement responded to and investigators were handling. So that is where I landed shortly after grad school to start my career as a professional social worker. We've worked together for this whole time. And I don't think I realized that because that's a very similar story to my own. And I, while completing my graduate degree, I did have some time in between my undergraduate degree. So my undergraduate degree is in psychology, a bachelor in psychology with a minor in sociology. And after I graduated with that degree, I did go do some field work for family protective services. And I did that for like seven years and then was getting my degree, my master's degree in social work. And did a couple of field placement internships. And my last one was at TCFE. And Sarah was actually my supervisor for that internship. She was pretty great. Best supervisor you've ever had. Best supervisor I've ever had. (laughs) Oh, well, William is here too. So (laughs) equally best supervisors I've ever had. And yeah. And so then after I got my degree, I ended up working at TCFE. So similar situation. So shout out to MSW programs for having that internship requirement really worked out. Yeah. It's a great great way to move into professional careers. Is is it similar for MPHs? So I think that's a major difference is that there's not a full-time internship. There are practicum expectations. Some programs might frame them as internships as well, but they're not at least not that I'm aware of, generally Masters of Public Health don't require that like full-time internship at the end of the degree program. And so for me, like it was, like I did some, a couple practica, I think, and then started working at TCIV after finishing my degree program. Like I cast the net pretty wide. I had worked in a local program. Before that, I'd worked in local programs during my grad school experience and was looking for you know, the next level up, the next macro level up. And so, and found TCFE. So moved myself out here to Austin. I think I realized that you, you, you came like right after grad school. Yeah. I was working at a clinic during grad school for like, like work study. And I'd stayed on for a couple of months after graduation before I got out here. But, but yeah, it was graduated in May and I started in July. Yeah. I just crossed my four or two days, two days from now will be my four year mark. July. Wow. Yeah. Congrats. We've been blessed with your presence for four years. I do what I can. But was that the same for you, Victoria? Like it wasn't an internship experience. It was correct. Yeah. And I would say, I think, and just to clarify, I work in our grants. And so I don't really deal as directly with survivors and 
do more of yeah our, all of our grant work. And so when I finished my master's program, which I did do a practicum, unfortunately that practicum did not lead to a job. So I <laughs> was left to fend for myself and I was looking for grant opportunities because I wanted more. I knew that would be a good skill to have for research later on and and that grant management and grant writing experience. And so I landed this job at TCFP and then didn't fully realize until I started working here how much health and domestic violence overlap. So it was not always discussed in my program. And even in like my clinical experiences, it wasn't always addressed, but it was always there, but it wasn't the primary focus of things. And so I think the more I've worked here, the more I've seen how public health and and social workers can make a huge difference in, in domestic violence. I think a lot of the assumptions around social workers, or maybe not, maybe assumption is not the right word, but is that there's this like clinical aspects to it. It's this individual one-on-one therapy-esque approach. And for public health, I think often the, again, assumptions not the right word, but that's what I'm working with here, is that it's all like policy macro at that like higher social ecological level. And I think that in some ways that that is often true for both, both of our fields, but that's not always the case, right? So there's when we get into violence prevention, we can see where a lot of there's a, a lot more blending of those things. Also for public health, I, I know that one of the differences is that we don't have a specific licensure program that is available to all public health students. And there is that option, that route for MSWs. And but it's it's an option, right? Like you don't have to do it. It's not required to get your degree. So I don't know if y'all want to talk about that route a little bit, but we well, don't I'd, we don't have that option yet. Yeah, I just want to add, William, and I think that's been really almost frustrating having a master's of public health is because there's no licensure that states this is what I know and this is a generalized skill set that any employer can see and public health is so broad that a lot of people just aren't totally sure what you can do with, with that master's as related to a social worker where that licensure is very consistent and regulated and understood at a wide level. So that is a gripe I have <laughs> public health education. I can offer feedback on social work licensure, the process that like you have to have a master's in social work to be licensed. You can be a licensed, like an LBSW licensed bachelor in social work. It's less common. It's less, I would say competitive in terms of marketability for employment. Like you can have it. It doesn't hold the same weight as a licensed master social worker. So after you get your master's, you can take the exam to become a licensed master social worker. And then that's a licensure you have to maintain and renew every two years in the state of Texas. And then if you do clinical hours doing private therapy, you can become a licensed clinical social worker, which will open up additional opportunities to open like your own private practice, to supervise students or interns who are trying to get their LCSWs as well, which again, makes you more marketable as a prospective employee. I will say that there's a myth that the licensure, you don't have to have it. I under like the Texas code, and I don't know what it is. I should have probably pulled that up before, but you're technically not supposed to refer to yourself as a social worker, unless you have a license. Now, does do people do that? No, there are people who don't actually have social work education who refer that to themselves as social workers. But I think, you know, based on the, what the code says, you're not technically supposed to refer to yourself that way unless you're licensed, which is kind of like a bureaucratic way of weeding people out when it's not really necessary. But that's probably another topic. Samantha, is there much I missed, do you think? Well, no, and I was just going to say that each sort of level of that licensure process comes with additional requirements. So like if you wanted to do your LCSW and get your clinical license, that's going to be another 
set of hours that you have to put in, like clinical hours that you have to put in. And there's some stipulations about what will and won't count towards those hours. I don't remember off the top of my head how much it is. I think it's like a couple hundred hours that you have to do to get your clinical license. But yeah, and so that's there's just different requirements for each level and not having a license. So that's a difference between Sarah and I. Sarah has a license and I don't. And so there's some jobs that I can get without a license like this one. But if I were trying to do something maybe clinical, I probably would not qualify without having my licensure. And that would be more competitive for me to have a clinical license. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think a lot of people assume that like all advocates are social workers and at that are licensed social workers. Because I don't think people fully understand what that license brings with it and like what type of work social work is. I think similarly, like social work is a broad term, like public health, where it can mean a lot of things, can do a lot with an MSW. And you can, again, not having gone through an MSW program, but my understanding is that you can kind of tailor your education experience based on the school that you're at, based on the curriculum that you're going through to kind of craft. Like if you want to do kind of more counseling or more like violence prevention or more eating disorders, or you you can kind of craft your, your journey or your expertise or however you want to frame it. And that's certainly the same in public health in that there are six major concentration areas and you can do everything from policy and environmental health to behavioral health and nutrition. So And then there are, within any of those fields, there are options for, it's not a licensure necessarily, but a certification, I guess, as far as like nutritionists or for me, like a certified health education specialist is a a lot of people who do health promotion, health education, health, behavioral science, that range of public health will get a CHES certification. And a lot of people don't because it's an extra test. It's an extra, like a yearly fee to keep your thing up and you got to do continuing education. And, and so it's, it's a lot of work to maintain, but yeah, you get to kind of craft your journey, but a lot of people will assume that because you're doing advocacy work, you're a social worker. And sometimes to your point, Sarah, I didn't know that it was illegal for me to be like, yeah, sure. I'm a social worker. I mean, I don't even have a social work degree. But without getting into, well, I'm actually a public health person. People are like, oh, so you're social. I'm like, basically, yeah, sure. So, yeah, I don't know who they're going to tell if you're like misrepresenting yourself. (laughs) The board's going to come get you. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have just said it on a (laughs) podcast. But (laughs) I also think it's probably a bigger deal if you're presenting yourself as a social worker who's like trying to care for like to do one like, or like, one one. One. like yeah. that can be really dangerous you know if you're doing mm-hmm. clinical work where you know you're assessing or tr- diagnosing or treating somebody with a psychiatric condition and you're actually not qualified to do that that's really dangerous i mean like still not advocating for people to go around <laughs> saying that they're social workers but but you know like i think you're right the field of social work the kinds of jobs and the kind of work that fits under that social work umbrella is so broad and people just really lump a lot of things under there. And that's one of the reasons why I did want a social work degree, honestly, was because like I had my undergrad in psychology. It felt a little bit limiting to the kinds of jobs that I would have access to, whereas social work is so broad that I felt like I would have room to explore. There's a lot of things I'm interested in. There's a lot of things that I want to do. And I've been able to really do a lot of different kinds of work and could, you know, in the future do lots of other kinds of things too. And so that's one of the things that appealed to me with a social work degree. Yeah. I think it's kind of that, you know, when people refer to things as like lowercase versus capital letter things to kind of denote because it's capital social work versus lowercase letter. I think that that's often what kind of the framing, right. Is like, this is, a lot of people assume that on the state level, certainly, but particularly at like programs that 
everyone's a social worker who's an advocate or they are doing social work. They are also doing public health for the record. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, one of the things that we could certainly talk about is that all of us have master's degrees, which give us all like a, a ton of educational privilege and have allowed us to advance in our careers. And that's one of the criticisms of the domestic violence movement as a whole is that it has continually become more and more professionalized and that we often aren't as willing to value the expertise of survivors. We expect them to have some sort of education in order to hold a job. And I think that when they have lived experience, that they could certainly thrive and do well in an advocate position or even leadership positions in programs. And so I think that that's one of the challenges that at least I experience is that I have all this stuff that I learned in grad school. I have all the stuff that I learned being an advocate before I went to grad school. And sometimes it's hard to roll into a space and try to check that educational privilege. And I don't know if y'all experience those things, but it is challenging. And I think that in a movement that's supposed to center survivors and their voices, the continued professionalization is a real struggle. And I agree with that. I think especially when we look at like leadership positions and, and opportunities for growth, I, I think survivors are often given opportunities to work in the field at a lower level, but I wonder how often it's capped because of a lack of supposed, you know, institutional education versus lived and learned experience and knowledge. But yeah, I don't know how you change that, but that seems like a leadership staffing type of remedy that has to happen from within to change it. Yeah. And I think that, I think a lot of programs do have some sort of, you can have a degree or you can have this many years of experience, right? There's this kind of Mm trade-off, but I wonder how much bias is still for the degree holder. So the, the other thing that I, in kind of in that conversation does, I think this is maybe program specific and not so much like degree specific, but do any of y'all's programs require you to work before getting your master's degree? No, I did do that, but it was not a requirement. So my master's program did not require it, but I am currently getting my PhD in public health and many PhD programs do require a certain number of years of working before you are allowed to, (laughs) to pursue a doctorate degree. Just like working in the field? In the field or some... Some relevant research field work, basically, so you don't just plow straight through from undergrad to PhDs, which I think is smart. I think you should take some time to work and figure out your interests and not just ride that higher academic train to the finish line. So, yeah. Yeah, my program did not require it. It encouraged it. It didn't require it. There are, I know that there are some MPH programs that do require it, that require like two years of work before you can mm-hmm. get your master's. But can you do it, can you do it concurrently, like while you're in undergrad? Get I think that? it's an admissions requirement of those programs. You have to do it before you, oh, I see what you're saying. Sorry. I think I started responding before I fully processed what you were saying. My bad. But you, you're saying during undergrad, can you be working? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if that would, that's a thing. Unclear. Yeah. I can say that a lot of my master's level classmates who came straight from undergrad, many of them do not work in public health. <laughs> They've completely changed career paths. And yeah, I think if you are considering higher education and you're maybe uncertain of what you're doing, grad school might not necessarily be the answer. <laughs> Yes, I would totally agree with that. I have a similar experience with grad school to folks who like went straight from undergrad without any in the field experience. Now just you've, you know, spent six plus years getting your grad graduate degree. And then they also don't, don't do any type of social work work. I also noticed it is an expensive (laughs) lesson. I also noticed in the program a difference between people who had been working and people who had not, Mm -hmm. like whether it was the way you perceived grades or the way that you were just able to respond to scenarios in classes, right? Where it was being able to consider people's real lived experiences as opposed to 
pitching a solution and it's like that's not actually gonna gonna be implementable that's a word it's funny you say that because i i don't want to say i got in fights but i definitely got in some heavy debates with classmates who had never worked in any kind of clinical experience or in communities and they would propose these outrageous ways to solve these very complex public health issues and it was like maybe go spend time in like a homeless community and then try to preach whatever you're preaching here <laughs> let me know if that's gonna work because it does make a difference for sure yeah or just being able to so I went to I was a public school kid for my entire life I went to a private school for grad school and there was a lot of affluent people that were in this program with me and even just that experience around like oh I've never really been around people with money like this and when they would propose a solution I'd be like that's not going to work for for people who who don't have money I remember this one example we were talking about a, an intervention for young people and one of my classmates raised their hand and they were like we'll just develop an app to do it on their phones every kid has a phone these days just develop an app and I was like but not every kid has a phone they're like, yeah, they do. I'm like, they literally don't. And if they do have a phone, it's not necessarily a smartphone. And if they do, that doesn't mean they have data for that. Like, there are a lot of things that may not be true in this situation. They're like, no, they all have phones. Like, we should just do an app. And I was like, this is not a viable solution. And, and so it was just super frustrating. So again, Victoria, similarly, not fights necessarily, but just energetic discussions. That's what I'll call it from now on. An energetic discussion. Yeah. Differing opinions. <laughs> I would say that this is where like the plus one for social work comes in, just in that you're required to do two internships in your graduate career. And I believe in undergrad, you have to do at least one. I was not an undergraduate social work student. My undergrad was in women's and gender studies and sociology. But for grad school, you had a part-time placement for the entire first year and then for your second year, you had a full-time placement for one semester, like based on hours. So I think that gives, it gives students the opportunity to have some more like lived experience working with clients in different populations with different needs so that they can have a better perspective on like social work values and ethics and serving populations before they get out into the field and actually start implementing what they learn. I think it was really important for me, like we all have our own personal experiences within our personal life that give us insight to different things. And that varies based on all the factors, right? Like gender, race, sexual orientation, all of these things. And so that's a bit of knowledge there. And then you have your experience, like your career experience. So that's like field internships or jobs. And then for me, because I did do field work for a while, for several years before starting my master's degree, I had that experience. And so for me, the master's program really helped give me context to the work I was doing that I think is, for me personally, was really invaluable because it helped me connect the dots and look at it from a more macro perspective for a lot of the clients that I was working with. So I sometimes wish that I could go back. And while I do think that my field experience is so important to help me understand what I was learning in my degree, if I had just done my degree program, I don't think I would have grasped it the same way without having that experience. But I also think that if I had just gone and done years and years and years of this direct service, I think eventually I would have learned these things and learned system interactions, but like at what cost, you know? And so there's a lot of times that I wish I could go back and maybe do things differently, having learned all of this context and having learned like trauma-informed care and having learned social work values and all of these things because maybe I would have done things differently and had different outcomes for my clients. That's something where I really see for my own career that the two things together really helped kind of make me feel more comfortable in the work that I'm doing. I think I have a really similar experience of like learning things during grad school, whether it was 
different behavioral theories, whether it was just different approaches to violence prevention, to trauma-informed care, that those few years that I was working in shelter, I was like, oh, I could have been a way better advocate. And thinking about, you know, I think Victoria and I are both, I mentioned the public health concentrations earlier. I think we both were in the concentration that is closest to social work. So it's behavioral science, health education, or at other places, it's like community engagement, something. I don't know. It's, but it's kind of the, within public health, it's considered the like, quote unquote, like touchy feely department. And it's, I think a lot of my programs like overlaps a lot with those tenants of social work around trauma-informed care and around behavior change and and education around health problems. And so I think that sometimes it's it is easy to think of the problems with public health broadly as an approach. Historically there have been a lot of challenges with it being white centric and it being a field that doesn't, that, that super values education, which is a kind of an interesting spot being that I do have a master's in public health, but, and I think in more recent decades, it has started to shift to try to do more community-based participatory research where you're learning from the communities that you're going into, you're listening, you're, you're actively implementing solutions to problems based on what a community is telling you and not what you think is best for that community. And so I do think that there's a lot of change, a positive change in public health and uh, the public health approach to prevention. Yeah, I would say I, would, I totally agree with that, William. And I think in my doctoral program, we have talked a lot about how there's kind of this divide and differences among like quantitative versus qualitative research. And I think historically, qualitative research and more of that CBPR approach has been seen as, yeah, like softer, more touchy-feely, not quite as concrete as having an actual number to quantify that research question. And, And in that, I think you lose the presence of the individual. And I think that's something that public health historically is not always encountered or well or cared about I guess because you're looking at everything from such a big population level it gets to a point where it's like well what about that individual or that community you know what we're trying to propose might not work for this specific community and we don't know why and so I think like you said William there there is a shift in culture around switching to more like mixed methods research and trying to get more of a individual and community level perspective rather than just putting these blank whitewashed male-centered theories onto different communities where these theories that we have to explain health behavior just don't fit and they need a lot of modification. So I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, William. Would y'all say that that was ingrained in your education? Because that also, I wonder if that's a difference with social work. Because I, I feel like, at least for my education, it was just like so heavily ingrained around how different social justice issues impact, you know, a family's ability to thrive, and that you can't, you know if you're being solution focused, you can't, you have to figure out what is at the root of the problem, what's happening with the family, what are, what's the history of a family, like the, all sorts of generational challenges and things that have come up and, you know, family and society and, and those pieces and how that impacts the way you can serve a family and promote, you know, community change versus just like prescribing like a theory or an idea. But so for me, it's super ingrained in the way that I was trained as a social worker. Yeah, that's a good explanation because I feel like in my classes, it wasn't so much a social justice framework as more of a health disparities and health inequity. And I had a concentration in in health disparities in addition to what Mm -hmm. William just described as behavioral sciences. So I think my education was a little, I intentionally had a better focus on that. But I would say in my PhD level classes, 
there's more of a conversation around that, a conversation that I don't think was present in 2016 when, when I started this program. And I don't know if that's because our culture has shifted a lot, you know, in the past six years, or maybe I just wasn't aware of those conversations we're having, people were having six years ago. I don't know. So William, I'm curious. I think for my program, it was a little bit ingrained. The difference in, in the language that you're using, Sarah, is that you were talking about a family, like specifically. And I think that is where the difference is, is that we would talk about social justice in broader terms, like again, kind of with the framework of health disparities and health inequities, but we would talk about it on systems level or like community level and not so much specific family level. And so I think that that, that is a major difference. But I do think for for me, like the social justice piece, the the various considerations were ingrained into the education. Not as well as it could have been, certainly, and not across departments. It was our department that kind of held a lot of that work, but it was much more, I guess, occasionally we talked about individuals and how to affect individual behavior change, but it was not so much focused on, but it was, it was broader, was really kind of the, the answer to your question. And it's possible that that's just sort of where my education landed because I what like my focus was the clinical focus. So there are two tracks you can take for my like education journey. It was either clinical or the macro level. And, and obviously I had to take both types of classes, but the training and education that I got was, you know, to become a clinician or to do therapy and, and counseling and those things. So I think it feels kind of like a both and sort of a scenario because I do believe that like the more macro focused tracks focus like a sim- in a similar way as public health does too. And I think that's just even with the perspectives of both degrees and what each focuses on, even something from the other tracks or specialties, I think you call them, those public health degrees can focus on. All of that put together, I think that's just a really important point that like all of it together can address the issue of domestic violence and all of those perspectives are needed to have a really holistic approach. And and it's not exclusive, right, to just social workers and masters of public health. There are so many other degree paths and other non-institutionalized education that it's all needed, right? Obviously, social workers and people in public health are doing the work now. And so we really just need everybody to find their own role to play in the movement, whatever whatever your degree is or whatever your education background is. Yeah, and I think that there are complications to every situation, but I do think that there's value in a diversity of experience and education and being able to apply different lived experiences, different types of theories, different types of intervention models, because it's gonna take it's gonna take the whole system to to end community violence, to end intimate partner violence. And we have to work across systems. And so Having different approaches is going to be important, but also being able to use the language of different systems. You know, Sarah, you work in community, uh, coordinated community response. And, you know, being able to use the language that law enforcement uses is important to help them understand like their role and being able to, the same thing is you can't use that same response when it comes to talking to advocates. Like, and so being able to be adaptable and work across communities is important. As we wrap this episode up, if someone out there is considering a path in your uh, degree program, whether it's social work or public health, do you have any tips for them or anything that you just kind of want to, would want to say to folks about how your degree program, your philosophical approach to violence prevention might be helpful? Yeah, I I would say for public health, I don't think I realized going into my master's how your professor's research interests greatly dictate the type of health information you'll learn. 
And so I chose UT Health Science Center, but the Austin campus, which is heavily focused on nutrition and education and physical activity, which I am interested in none of those things. And I had to kind of create and pave my own path based on my research interests, which they were very supportive of that. But it did make it a little harder because I wasn't learning these public health principles through the lens necessarily of things that I wanted to learn them through and having mentors that were experts in that field. So I would say for public health, look at the professors at whatever program you're interested in applying for and see if you are interested in the types of works and projects that they are doing, because that might really impact your education. That's a super good tip. And I I think I could probably follow up with something similar for the social work realm is to, if you're interested in a master's in social work, to really dig into the internship process and placement opportunities that the school can offer you. I think I was lucky in that I was accepted into UT's program, which has like a very, very wide net of placement opportunities for social work, both like statewide, nationally and internationally in all sorts of different fields, which really gives you like the best opportunity for experience to build a resume. You can get the formal education in all sorts of different places, but having and being able to build connections with your final field internships is really what can set you up professionally moving forward after you graduate. So the biggest tip I would do is to like really interview and dig into placement opportunities with your grad school for social work. Cause that was like life-changing for me for sure. I'll just echo what Sarah said. That's also what I would recommend and not to be afraid to say no, thank you. <laughs> you know, if, if your program, it happened to me, my program and granted this was pre COVID. So I don't know if things have changed and availability might be different now for field placements, but I was offered a field placement and it really wasn't something I was interested in. And I really wanted to focus my attentions on possible career paths. And so I asked if there was another opportunity and that's how I got connected with TCFE. And so, you know, just really advocating for what I tried to do is something that I knew I wanted to do. And then another placement with something outside of my comfort zone that I might be interested in or could at least help build on my experience to better suit me for my future career. And so really just, yeah, just really digging into those and utilizing them and taking full advantage of those field placements. And even if you're like in an undergrad program, even I would seek out internships during my undergrad. So I did two internships during my undergrad degree as well. And just all of that experience was so helpful and really gave me just a really good variety of experience. I think that's a good point. Samantha, just it, you're paying for this education. It's your education and you have every right to pursue things that are of interest to you and that will help further you in your career. So another nugget of wisdom. It's like the one time you can be really selfish professionally in terms of building your experience and expertise compared to, you know, being an adult with needing to pay your bills and have full-time job employment and healthcare and those sort of things that weigh over you a little bit differently than compared to when you're a student and have like access to different opportunities and coverages and those things. Yeah. And I think that that's similar to what I would have offered as a tip is, is really trying to find a program that matches your interests or that has the, the guy really sought out a program that, that had classes that were specifically about violence as a public health problem that had, I, you know, I got a certificate in injury and violence prevention. Like I had these things that I, I had been working in violence prevention for a while. I knew that that's kind of where I wanted my career to go and being able to craft it with the program. And I also think that for me, for public health specifically, like just realizing how broad public health is and how many things count, I guess, as public health and being able to take and 
be exposed to different classes and different perspectives and being able to see how different theories and different approaches can be applied to uh, the same problem and really impact different results depending on the population receiving that intervention. And so I think that it was also very important to me, like one of the best class that I took in my program was called History of Public Health. And it was it was super important grounding for, for understanding where the field that I was coming into, where it had been, the missteps that it had taken, and how me as a white man, I need to know the the impact of the history of white men in, in this field and in my my own move, domestic violence movement to, to help me craft like my role and my, like learn how to wield my power and privilege in these spaces that I am actively trying to be in. And so while also learning how to, you know, fail forward with it when you mess up. So, but yeah, so I think that social work and public health are both huge fields. There's so much that you can do with them. And so happy to have such exemplary examples of the products of these programs here with me at TCFE. So, and I think it's important that we, like I said, as a field, um, as a movement, we have that diversity of thought and have these different perspectives and approaches. And so um, when we think about how we, how we can best serve programs or how we can best serve survivors, we have a lot of different things to draw on. But definitely not like the study of tissues or rocks. Definitely not. Geology <laughs> and geology for yeah. sure. What did geology ever do for the domestic violence? Movement? Nothing. That's what I want to know. Yeah, nothing. I'm sure someone out there is going to be like, well, actually. We're going to get some hate emails about yeah. that, Victoria. Thanks, Victoria. I'm sorry. I'm sure there's <laughs> like, a geologist <laughs> advocate out there somewhere. Please there. contact us if you are. <laughs> Maybe they build like rock houses for survivors. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, are able to analyze different rocks yeah. that, you know, I don't know. But, but anyway, but we, we've made it. We've made it here. We're doing great. We're trying to make it through the craziness that is this world right now. So I appreciate all of you being here and the little bit of levity that this conversation has while also talking about a real difference of approaches and some of the similarities as well so so yeah thanks i think this is a really great way to wrap up our second season thanks for having us yeah thank you and for those of you listening so like i said this is the last episode of season two so we won't be back with another episode for a couple months but you can always go back and listen to the other episodes and you can if you have any ideas for new episodes next season email us. Our email will be in the episode description. So you can always reach out. If you have an idea for an episode or you want to be on an episode, let us know and we'll figure it out. But until then, have a great summer. Bye.